This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On Wednesday, January 2nd, 1935, Roland T. Owen checked into the President Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri, and paid for one night. He signed the register and stated his home address was in Los Angeles. The man brought no luggage with him. He asked for an interior room on an upper level, overlooking the hotel's inner courtyard. The desk clerk gave him the key to room 1046. The staff couldn't help but notice that Mr. Roland T. Owen had a large scar above his left ear, which he tried hiding by combing it over with his dark brown hair. But that appears to be the only identifying feature, because later accounts identified him ranging anywhere between 20 to 35 years old. The bellhop led Owen up to his room, later noting that the two chatted casually on the way, and that the man was neatly dressed, wearing a dark overcoat. Room 1046 was small by today's standards. Past the short entry hallway, with a closet on one side and a bathroom on the other, the room was only 9 feet wide and 12 feet long, enough to hold a bed, a small telephone stand, a writing desk, an easy chair, and a dresser. Owen pulled the few items he had out of his overcoat pocket, putting his hairbrush, comb, and toothpaste on a shelf above the sink. The two men then left the room and headed back down to the lobby. Owen then left the hotel, and the bellboy went about his job. Later that same day, the maid, Mary Soptic, knocked on the door of room 1046. Owen was back in the room, and let her in. Mary found the room dark, with the curtains tightly drawn, and the only light coming from a small desk lamp. As she cleaned, Owen asked her to keep the door unlocked, because he was expecting a visitor. He then headed out again. At around 4 p.m., the maid went back to room 1046 to drop off some clean towels. The door was still unlocked, so she headed in. She found Owen lying across the bed in the dark. He was fully dressed, and to Mary, it looked like he was sleeping, so she dropped off the towels and started to leave. Passing the desk, she saw a note that read, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. When asked about his behavior, Mary would later state that Roland Owen seemed like, quote, he was either worried about something or afraid. She also said that, quote, he always wanted to kind of keep in the dark. The next day, January 3rd, around 10.30 a.m., Mary went back to room 1046 to clean it. She used her passkey to get in, which only worked if the door had been locked from the outside so she was understandably surprised to find Owen sitting in a chair in the corner of his dark room. Someone had locked him in. She was in the middle of cleaning the room when he received a call. Mary overheard him say, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. A moment later, he repeated it. No, I'm not hungry. Mary assumed this was the same Don Owen was expecting to visit the day before. She finished cleaning and left the room. Just like the day before, it was around 4 p.m. when Mary stopped by room 1046 with clean towels. 
She knocked softly, but there was no answer. Yet, she could clearly hear two men talking inside. She knocked again. This time, someone asked, Who is it? She identified herself as the housekeeper and said she was dropping off fresh towels. To that, a gruff, deep voice that Mary was sure did not belong to Owen replied, We don't need any, and told her to leave. Having removed the towels herself earlier that day, she found the response odd, but moved on with her work, not giving it much more thought. Around 6 p.m. later that day, Jean Owen, no relation to Roland Owen, checked in to the hotel president. She lived in a nearby town and was visiting Kansas City to see her boyfriend and do some shopping. She wasn't feeling well, so decided to stay overnight and return home the next day. Jean Owen would later tell police, quote, I heard a lot of noise which sounded like it was on the same floor and consisted largely of men and women talking loudly and cursing. When the noise continued, I was about to call the desk clerk, but decided not to. The commotion may have been coming from room 1046, but there was also a boisterous party going on in room 1055, just down the hall. The next morning, January 4th, at just past 7 a.m., the hotel telephone operator realized the phone in room 1046 was off the hook. After waiting 10 minutes, the bellboy was sent up to check. The door was locked, and there was a Do Not Disturb sign on the doorknob. After multiple knocks, Owen eventually told the bellhop to come in, but the door remained locked from the inside. When another seven or eight times of knocking went unanswered, the employee yelled, put the phone back on the hook, and left. He assumed the guest was simply drunk and accidentally pushed the phone off the stand. He suggested the telephone operator send up someone else in an hour or so if the phone was still off the hook. An hour or so later, it was still off the hook, and another bellhop was sent up to the room. His name was Harold Pike, and, unlike his colleague, he used his passkey to get into the room. A passkey, again, that only worked if the room had been locked from the outside. Once inside, he saw Owen lying naked on the bed, surrounded by dark spots on the bedsheets. The guest appeared to be drunk, so Pike found the phone on the floor and put the receiver back on the hook. He left the room, locked the door behind him, and went to report what he saw to his manager. Curiously, two hours later, the phone was off the hook again. The first bellhop went back to the room and again knocked repeatedly with no answer. Like the other bellhop had done, he used his key to get in, but once inside, he was met with a shocking scene. Later describing it to a reporter, he said, quote, when I entered the room, this man was within two feet of the door on his knees and elbows, holding his head in his hands. I noticed blood on his head. I then turned the light on, placed the telephone receiver on the hook. I looked around and saw blood on the walls, on the bed, and in the bathroom. This frightened me, and I immediately left the room and went downstairs. Moments later, the manager, the bellhop, and another staff member rushed back up to room 1046 but as they tried to enter, the door would only open about six inches. Owen had collapsed just on the other side and was now blocking the door from opening. Fearing the worst, the hotel manager decided it was time to call the authorities. Police arrived with a doctor and pushed their way into the room. 
They found Owen bound at the neck, wrists, and ankles with a cord, with obvious signs that he had been tortured. He had a skull fracture on the right side of his head from repeated blows with a blunt object. He had also been stabbed multiple times in the chest, resulting in a punctured lung. There was additional bruising on his neck, suggesting strangulation. The dark spots that the bellboy had seen on the bedsheets were, in fact, pools of blood, which were also found on the wall next to the bed and even splattered on the ceiling above the bed. Incredibly, Owen was still alive, although barely. Before he was transported to the hospital, police asked if anyone had been in the room with him. He was only semi-conscious and barely able to speak, but he did say one word. Nobody. When police asked what had happened, he simply said, I fell against the bathtub, before passing out. Just after midnight on January 5th, on the way to the hospital, Roland T. Owen fell into a coma and died, leaving investigators with one of the greatest murder mysteries of all time. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Doctors estimated that based on the dried state of the blood on his body and in the room, Owen's injuries were approximately six to seven hours old. This meant that he had been injured prior to the bellboy's first trip to room 1046 to check on the phone. Faced with an unexplained death, the police scoured the room looking for clues, but they found very little. Everything had been stripped from the room, including all of Owen's clothes, as well as all of the room amenities, such as the shampoo. The items they did find generated more questions than answers. An unlit cigarette, a hairpin, a label from a necktie, a safety pin, and a small unused bottle of diluted sulfuric acid. There were two glasses in the room. One was still on the shelf above the sink, and the other was in the sink, in pieces. The only other clue found in the room were four small fingerprints, which investigators believed likely belonged to a woman. Based on the evidence, police quickly ruled out suicide. One of the investigators told local newspapers, quote, There is no doubt someone else is mixed up in this. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. As the search for suspects began, the biggest question quickly became who was Roland Owen. The day after his death, a local Kansas newspaper reported that investigators were confident that he registered under an assumed name. They would soon discover this was a pattern. A nearby hotel told authorities that a man matching Owen's description had stayed there just a few days earlier, on January 1st. He had checked in as Eugene K. Scott, and just like at the hotel president, he requested an interior room. 
A few days earlier, at the St. Regis Hotel, he checked in under the name Duncan Ogletree, sharing a room with a man named Donald Kelso. In order to identify Owen, who was now deemed a John Doe, police asked the public to come forward with any information. The body was even publicly displayed at a funeral home in the hopes that someone might recognize him. It was estimated that up to 300 people viewed the body. One man identified Owen as his cousin, but his sister confirmed that while there was an uncanny resemblance, the cousin had actually died five years earlier. A promoter identified him as an amateur wrestler who had approached him a few weeks earlier about participating in events. But when the wrestler's previous manager viewed the body, he did not recognize him. There was one other person who recognized the body. His name was Robert Lane, and while he didn't exactly know who the John Doe was, he did meet him. Late at night on January 3rd, hours before Owen was beaten and tortured, Lane was driving home from work when he saw a man running along the road wearing only an undershirt, pants, and shoes. The man waved at Lane, who stopped his car, but then quickly realized that Lane was not a taxi. As it was cold and the man was clearly underdressed for the weather, Lane offered him a ride to where he could find one. When the man got into the back seat, Lane saw a deep cut on his left arm. He said, quote, You look as if you've been in it bad. The man muttered something under his breath about killing that guy tomorrow. The passenger thanked him for the lift when they arrived, and Lane drove off, never to see him again. That was until the public visitation. Lane was sure that was the man he gave a lift to, and the deep scratch on the body's arm confirmed it for him. The police, however, were not as sure. There were no other witnesses, and the only time they could confirm Owen had been outside the hotel that day was with two women at, quote, several liquor places. News of the murder spread throughout the country, and potential leads started pouring in. Many came from people looking to see if the unidentified body was a missing relative, so police asked families to provide pictures to help speed up the identification process. Authorities also enlisted the help of police departments around the country, but none of this led to a positive ID and the leads quickly dried up. Months passed while investigators tried to identify the body. Finally, on March 3, 1935, a local newspaper published a notice that Owen would be buried the next day in the city's common graveyard. But within hours of the release, the newspaper received a phone call from a woman who said, quote, You have a story in your paper that is wrong. Roland Owen will not be buried in a pauper's grave. Arrangements have been made for his funeral. The editor asked what happened to Owen at the hotel, and the woman replied, he got into a jam, before she hung up. Later that day, the funeral home received a call from an unknown man, stating that he would send money to cover the cost of a funeral. Don't bury Owen in a pauper's grave, the caller said. I want you to bury him in Memorial Park Cemetery. Then he will be near my sister. When the funeral home director asked what had happened to Owen, the man said that he had jilted a woman that he promised to marry. Cheaters usually get what's coming to them, he said before hanging up. But, true to his word, three weeks later, the funeral home received an envelope containing $25 cash, or about $500 today. The money was wrapped in newspaper and was more than enough to pay for the funeral services. Shortly after the call to the funeral home, 
A local flower shop also received a call asking for 13 American Beauty roses to be sent to Owen's funeral. They said, quote, I'm doing this for my sister. I'll send you a $5 bill, special delivery. Like the funeral home, not long after, the money arrived by mail, along with a card to be included with the roses. The card read, Love Forever, Louise. None of the phone calls nor the letters were ever successfully traced. The funeral happened shortly after, with only police detectives in attendance. Hoping that someone might visit the grave after the funeral, authorities continued to watch the cemetery, disguising themselves as grave diggers. A year and a half went by with little progress made on the case. Then, in November of 1936, a woman named Ruby Ogletree read an article about the murder, entitled The Mystery of Room Number 1046. When she saw the photo of Owen and the scar above his left ear, she instantly knew it was her 17-year-old son, Artemis. He had left for Birmingham, Alabama a couple of years earlier with plans to hitchhike across the country to California. She notified the Kansas City police and sent them a photograph of her son. She described his scar in detail and explained that it was caused by a childhood accident with hot grease. Investigators were confident they had finally identified their John Doe. On November 2nd, 1936, 20 months to the day he checked into the hotel president, newspapers around the country reported that Roland T. Owen was actually Artemis Ogletree. That part of the mystery was now solved. An unknown murder victim who died under strange circumstances finally identified. However, as detectives would soon learn, there were even more unusual events surrounding the crime. Months after Roland Owen, or rather Artemis Ogletree, died, but before his family knew about his death, his mother received three letters, supposedly from her son. The first was received in the spring of 1935, one year after he left, and had been sent from Chicago. The letter was peculiar for two reasons. First, it was full of language that she had never heard her son use before, and the tone of the letter just didn't sound like Artemis. Second, the letter was written on a typewriter. Ruby Ogletree knew her son had never used a typewriter before, and was confident that he wouldn't know how to operate one. The next letter arrived about a month later, from New York City. This one said he was heading off to Europe, which caused Ruby some concern, since he wanted to be in California. Not long after, a third letter came, special delivery, informing his mother that he was boarding a ship later that very day. A few months later, on August 12, 1935, Ruby received a long-distance phone call from Memphis, Tennessee. The man did not identify himself, and went on to inform her that Artemis was in Cairo, Egypt. He said Artemis had married a wealthy woman, and that unfortunately he couldn't write because sadly he'd lost his thumb in a barroom brawl. The caller said that her son saved his life in the fight. Ruby spoke to the man for half an hour and said that he talked wildly. She also said that whoever it was, he was knowledgeable about her son. When the call ended, she gave the man's name to police, but that information has never been released. Convinced that something nefarious was going on, Ruby wrote a letter directly to J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI, seeking their help locating her son. She also contacted the American consulate in Cairo, but was later informed they could find no trace of Artemis. 
The purpose of the letters and the phone call have remained a mystery. Was it just a cruel joke, or were they intended to keep Ruby from connecting the murder in Kansas City to her missing son? The person or persons who wrote the letters and made the call have never been identified. Two years earlier, back at the scene of Artemis Ogletree's death, the police were struggling to identify the killer or their motive. Their first suspect was Gene Owen, the hotel guest who had spent the night in the adjacent room. Detectives thought it was just a bit too coincidental that she had the same last name and just happened to be in the room next door on the night of the murder. As it turned out, it was just a coincidence. Her boyfriend had been in the room for much of the night and was able to provide an alibi. He also confirmed her story of loud voices coming from room 1046. So, the police turned their attention to Don, the name mentioned in the note the maid saw on the desk, and heard mentioned on the phone call. Was Don the gruff voice who told the maid they didn't need any towels? Was he the male voice Gene Owen heard through the walls? Could he have been the same person as Donald Kelso, the one Ogletree shared a room with at the St. Regis Hotel a few nights earlier? Or maybe Don referred to someone in the Mafia? Unfortunately, the police never found out. Two years after the murder, in 1937, a man named Joseph Martin was arrested in New York City on unrelated murder charges. During the investigation, police learned that one of the many aliases used by Martin was Donald Kelso. According to a story in The New Yorker, the Kansas City police believed they could match his handwriting to the man who shared a room with Ogletree at the St. Regis Hotel, as well as the person who sent the letters to Ruby Ogletree. Yet, Despite all the circumstantial evidence, no charges were ever filed against Martin. Almost 100 years later, Artemis Ogletree's death is still an open case with the Kansas City Police. Every few years in the decades following the murder, authorities would re-examine the evidence with the hope of finding a new lead. By the 1950s, however, the case had pretty much been forgotten. That was until 2003, when Dr. John Horner wrote a story for the Kansas City Public Library website on the strange cold case. Shortly after, he received an out-of-state call from someone wishing to remain anonymous. The caller said they were sorting through the possessions of an elderly person who had recently died and found a box full of newspaper articles about Ogletree's death. The caller said that in the box was an item of interest that had been mentioned in the newspaper stories but, for whatever reason, they would not reveal what the item was. Just one more piece to an already odd, almost 100-year-old, unsolved murder. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Haley Gray. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? 
email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.